0: Oh, where is it? Oh, let's
1: read it together. At the top? Oh, yeah. In three, two, one. Thank you for listening to the NPR Politics
0: Podcast. We We want to let you know you You can can check out the NPR One app. app.
1: For exclusive exclusive bonus content content from From NPR's NPR's hit hit podcast, Podcast.
0: Invisibilia! Invisibilia.
1: Find find the brand brand new season of Invisibilia, Invisibilia. stories from your local station, and And more great podcasts on NPR One. One. It's on your app store now!
0: (laughs) (laughs) It's the NPR Politics Podcast here with our wrap of the week's political news. Big Supreme Court decisions, big changes for Donald Trump's campaign, and a dramatic demonstration in Congress from Democrats demanding gun control legislation. We'll answer a few listener questions and end the show with can't let it go when we all share one thing we just can't stop thinking about
2: this week. I'm Tamara Keith. I cover the White House and the campaign. I'm Asma Khalid. I cover demographics and the campaign.
1: I'm Scott Detrow, campaign reporter.
2: And I'm
3: Mara Lyason, national political correspondent.
0: And, whoa, what a news day. I saw somebody call it News Newsmageddon. Both. It just, like, keeps coming and coming. It's in waves, and the aliens are there, and,
2: and it just won't stop. That's so. actually
1: Independence Day, which comes out this weekend.
2: <laughs> Is there still another one? Oh, yeah. Oh, man, I forgot. I thought, like, that was... They're back. <laughs> All right, so let's talk about the big
0: news this afternoon. Two major Supreme Court decisions came down this morning. The first one was a defeat for President Obama's executive action on immigration, This is his plan to protect parents of children who are citizens or otherwise here legally, to allow them to apply for a program that would spare them from deportation and they'd be able to get work permits, too. Um, It would have affected up to five million people and the Supreme Court tied 4-4. Because there's currently no ninth justice, which means the decision goes back to the lower court decision. And that lower court ruled that the administration lacked the authority to do this. Scott, you were out on the steps of the Supreme Court this morning.
1: I talked to Nina Totenberg about this on NPR Live, so I have, by the transit of property, all of Nina Totenberg's knowledge about this. <laughs>
0: it's like you stated a
1: Holiday Inn Express. <laughs> exactly. I mean, this was a big deal politically. This was a high-profile... Um, effort from the Obama administration that has now been thrown out by the Supreme Court. This is an issue that Republicans have been harping on for years, saying that President Obama did not have the authority to do this, that he overstepped his bounds uh, with executive actions. This certainly gives a lot of momentum to those arguments. It's something that's already been a big campaign trail issue, the, uh, the topic of immigration. So you can imagine this brings it out to a higher level. This also affects in real life Millions and millions of people. You said this up to 5 million people. So this has huge consequences.
3: Also, it was a real expansion. It was as much uh, of comprehensive immigration reform as the president could do by himself. He wanted a bill. He couldn't get that. Uh, So he tried this and he was stopped.
0: And President Obama, he came out into the White House press briefing room today. He responded to the court's decision, and then he very quickly waded into the politics.
4: Leaving the broken system the way it is, that's not a solution. In fact, that's the real amnesty. Pretending we can deport 11 million people or build a wall without spending tens of billions of dollars of taxpayer money uh, is abetting uh, what is uh, really... uh, just factually incorrect. It's it's not going to work. It's not good for this country.
1: That's more about Donald Trump than the Supreme Court.
3: <laughs> yeah. Well, um, Donald Trump is definitely on President Obama's mind these days. Oh, no doubt about it. You know, when he says pretending we can deport 11 million people, build a wall, that's obviously who he's talking about. However, what was really interesting to me about the president's statement today was that he said over and over again the Supreme Court... The
4: Supreme Court was unable to reach a decision. This is part of the consequence of the Republican failure so far to give a fair hearing to Mr. Merrick Garland. They were tied.
3: They couldn't make a decision. That's why the lower court ruling stands. And that being a hit at the the fact that Merrick Garland... Which wouldn't have made any difference anyway. Merrick Garland couldn't have been on the court in time for this. And also, even if he had come up for a vote, he probably wouldn't be confirmed. But what the president is trying to say is, number one, they didn't make a decision. And number two, this election in November, and he said, we've got a very real choice that America faces right now.
4: And now we've got a choice about who we're going to be as a country, what we want to teach our kids. And how we want to be represented in Congress and in the White House. We're going to have to make a decision about whether we are a people who tolerate the hypocrisy of a system where the workers who pick our fruit or make our beds never have the chance to get right with the law, or whether we're going to give them a chance, just like our forebears had a chance, to take responsibility and give their kids a better future. And the
3: president and Hillary Clinton have both been framing this election as an election about American values.
1: Still, I think the fact that uh, a decision with this much of an effect on the country came out, it was literally a single sentence. Basically, uh, I'm paraphrasing here. The court is deadlocked. This goes back to the lower court ruling the end. Uh, The fact that something so significant was basically a 4-4 tie that says what, what they said before, and this doesn't have any standing going forward, And the fact that the other big decision today was made by seven members of the Supreme Court because uh, Elena Kagan recused herself and then there was that empty seat. I think today more than any other day in the Supreme Court's term really lays bare the fact this is not a fully operational court right now. And that's something that had kind of faded to the background politically uh, over the last few months.
3: Actually, the candidates might not be talking about it, but this is one election where the Supreme Court matters more Mm -hmm. to voters than it usually does. Usually it only matters to the The most ardent activists on both sides who care about this thing. But the fact that you have the balance of power on the court hanging in the balance, uh, I think that makes the Supreme Court a much bigger deal. So what happens with this ruling?
0: Uh, let's say there becomes a court that is a nine-member court. Um,
3: th- this doesn't set any precedent or anything. This is, this is really just like a blah. What it means is if there's a Democratic president or if there's another Democratic appointed justice on the Supreme Court, the Justice Department will go find another plaintiff in another state and start bringing this up again so that you get two appeals court with different rulings and then the Supreme Court has to adjudicate that. Have they nullified the the executive action? No, no. No, They've stayed it. They've stayed it. That means it can't go into effect. And the Supreme Court
0: did weigh in on a second case, a big one. This one about affirmative action. And the court upheld a race-conscious admissions program at the University of Texas at Austin. Uh, This was a case brought by Abigail Fisher, a white woman who said the university had denied her admission based on her race. And Asma, can you read the the part
2: of the decision that, that gets at this? So this comes from the majority opinion written by Justice Kennedy. Considerable deference is owed to a university in defining those intangible characteristics, like student body diversity, that are central to its identity and educational mission. But still, it remains an enduring challenge to our nation's education system to reconcile the pursuit of diversity with the constitutional promise of equal treatment and dignity. There you go.
1: I mean, so basically, boiling this all down, oversimplifying a little bit, uh, UT had a system that weighs race and weighs a diversity of its student body in an intangible way as part of the whole. Um, Looking at several other factors, the court said that's basically okay. And that's different than uh, more than 10 years ago, there was a big University of Michigan case in front of the Supreme Court where the racial factors were much more concrete. It was almost a formula in that case. The court said that was not acceptable, but this kind of making it a factor, but looking at a lot of other things as well, that's basically okay.
0: And affirmative action has, as a result of that previous case, has been pretty well eroded already. It it is not it is no longer as robust as it used to be.
2: Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Let's move on to what the heck happened in the House of Representatives last night.
1: But the chair would hope that the business of the House could be conducted
0: in a fashion
3: that that
0: respects... And to help us with that, we are joined by Sue Davis. Hi, Sue. Hey, guys. Hello. Sue, you are in your tiny booth uh, on the House side of the uh, U.S. Capitol. And I'm caffeinating after a almost 24-hour workday yesterday, so... (laughs) Yeah, so no
5: bill, no break. Was the hashtag of... the official hashtag of the House Democratic protest or sit-in that started uh, shortly before noon on Wednesday, and it was spearheaded uh, by three members of Congress. Uh, the sort of spiritual head of it was Congressman John Lewis. He's a Democrat from Georgia, and he was an icon of the civil rights movement and probably one of the most respected members of Congress today.
4: I asked that all of my colleagues Join me on the floor.
5: And two of the Democrats that helped him were uh, John Larson, a Democrat from Connecticut, and Catherine Clark, who is a Democrat from Massachusetts. And the three of them sort of guerrilla staged this protest in which they took over the floor just as it was going out of session. And they said, you know what, we're going to literally sit on the House floor and we are going to stop action and we are going to protest congressional inaction on guns. And we're not going to leave until we get a vote.
4: We must remove the blinders. The time for silence and patience is long gone. We are calling on the leadership of the House to bring common sense gun control legislation to the House floor. Give us a vote. Let us vote.
0: We came here to do our job. We came here to work.
5: But what made this protest, I think, so fascinating and what got it so much attention is Democrats really cleverly used the tools of social media To broadcast this protest. They used Facebook Live. They used an app called Periscope. They used Instagram, all of which are technically in violation of the rules of the House. It was civil disobedience when it comes to the House of Representatives and the rules that they live under. And so they continued to hold the floor for over 24 hours. They seated the floor just within about an early afternoon on Thursday. They passed the 24-hour mark. uh, And You know, what did they accomplish, I guess is the question. Yeah. Okay. You know, they certainly succeeded in getting the House to or at least getting half of the House to focus and debate gun legislation. This comes after the Orlando shooting at a nightclub there. This comes after Democratic Senator Chris Murphy held the floor in the Senate last week for over 15 hours, which helped force votes in the Senate over there, although they were ultimately unsuccessful. And this is a continuation of this effort. There is an incredible amount of frustration, strictly within the Democratic Party, that in the years following these mass shootings, which I think you would probably start going back to the shooting of Congresswoman Gabrielle Giffords in Arizona in 2011, followed by Newtown, followed by San Bernardino, followed most recently by Orlando, that Congress has never moved any kind of legislation in response to any of these events. You know, to restrict gun access, to loosen gun access, they've done nothing on guns. And That frustration has clearly reached a boiling point, at least on one side of the aisle.
1: So it seemed like the Democrats were clearly trying to channel, you know, like the civil rights era with with this action. You had John Lewis front and center. They were sitting on the on the floor. They were singing, you know, we shall overcome.
2: We shall
3: overcome.
1: Seems like kind of a risky strategy, doesn't it? But it seems like for the most part it kind of played off in terms of elevating the attention that they got.
5: Yes, and I think, you know, the only way you get to equate something to the civil rights movement is if John Lewis is on the floor saying this is like the civil rights movement. I mean, the,
1: I guess he has street cred on.
5: That yeah, <laughs> John Lewis is a Democrat from Georgia. He's an icon of the civil rights movement. He marched with Martin Luther King. He is one of the best known members of Congress today, and he is probably one of the most respected members of Congress today. And he helped spearhead this entire protest. And they certainly invoked the language of the civil rights movement as they did this. —
1: You know, I can hear Dr. King's words. He once said, somewhere
3: I hear the God of the universe saying, I was hungry and you fed me not. There are people in this country who are hungry— — Although, you know,
5: I have to say that— This certainly was not Selma, and we shouldn't cast it as if members were under any kind of hardship as they did this. But they did say today at the conclusion of this, expect more of this, that this isn't over. And, you know, yes, there's raw politics here. This is an issue that the Democratic base is absolutely on fire about. And I think that is why you heard Paul Ryan today say, this isn't about having a policy debate, this is about politics. And I think we have some tape from him.
1: They are not trying to actually get this done through regular order. No, instead, they're staging protests. They're trying to get on TV. They are sending out fundraising solicitations, like this one. House Democrats on the House floor. Your contribution will go to the DCCC. And
5: I think that is what made Republicans left a really bad taste in their mouth. They looked at this and said, Democrats are just trying to make a show of this. And they just didn't engage. They didn't debate on the floor about any of the gun votes. When they came in, they did hold votes, but they voted on completely unrelated measures. They passed a funding bill to combat the Zika virus. They gaveled out. What they did get Republicans to do is end the House session two days early. They were supposed to work through Friday. Instead, they just adjourned and went home for the Fourth of July recess and the House won't come back now till July 5th.
0: I want to just toss in a politically cynical question, which is, are, are Democrats doing this because they want, I mean, they do want something to happen, but do they also want something that they can use in, in campaigns to be able to say, Congressman so-and-so from somewhere voted against a bill that would have kept guns out of terrorists' hands? Short answer, yes.
5: But also, Tam, what is so interesting about what Democrats did to me, or did to me. What Democrats did, <laughs> they did kind of Not do it wrong. to me. They did kind of do it to you me. So it, it felt it me. was personal at one point. Um, what Democrats did in this protest. So their use of social media was, in terms of like publicity and PR, fairly brilliant. Nothing like this has ever been done before on the House floor, and it allowed C-SPAN and the networks and people from far away to experience this in a way that they never would have been able to do before. But what's also really interesting to the raw politics of this is that members aren't allowed to use C-SPAN in their campaign ads. They're not allowed to use it for politicking. It, there's very strict rules on that. But what's to say you couldn't use any of those clips from those Periscope, from those 24 hours of Periscope videos in a campaign ad? I mean, there would be nothing that would prevent you from that. And I am one of my questions going forward is: Do we see those images pop up in you know? I think 168 Democrats at some point spoke on the floor over the course of that night. You know, are we going to see some of those clips in campaign ads? And if we do, I think that in some ways would only, you know, prove Speaker Ryan's point that there was a lot of just raw politics in this debate.
3: Yeah. And, you know, Democrats in traditionally have been behind the eight ball on this. I mean, Newt Gingrich was the one who first stood on an empty house floor and made speeches knowing that that camera was on him and used it very, very effectively. But the other thing about what the Democrats did, it was a pretty brilliant bit of counter-programming because it did compete or perhaps overshadow the other big story of the day, which was Donald Trump giving his big
5: speech. It was one of the rare occasions where Donald Trump was not the driving question of the day to Speaker Ryan. (laughs) So to that extent, Democrats also did succeed in fundamentally shifting the debate on Capitol Hill this week.
0: So, Sue, just quickly, because we know you need to leave, where does this go from here? So, It's not over.
5: I do think that House Democrats will continue protesting in some form or fashion, although in the House you have a lot fewer avenues to actually offer legislation when you're in the minority party. I will say in the Senate, uh, Maine Senator Susan Collins is still trying to find a way forward on that no fly, no buy provision we've talked about. If that legislation can get 60 votes in the Senate and can pass, Speaker Ryan has not ruled out taking a look at a proposal that can get 60 votes in the Senate. His position was these two bills that Democrats wanted to vote on are both proposals that failed in the Senate and can't pass there. So he's saying we shouldn't if you know we can't move these forward because we know they're not going to pass. Show me something that can pass and maybe then we can have a conversation.
0: All right, Sue, we know you need to go. Thank you so much for being with us here. Thanks, guys. Bye. Bye, guys. Have a great weekend. (laughs) Bye-bye. And so, like Mara said, the thing about the sit-in is that it pretty much wiped Donald Trump out of the news after barely an afternoon, after he gave his big speech on Wednesday. We'll talk about that right after this quick break.
1: We'd like to say a quick thank you and share a message from one of our sponsors, United Health Group, who asks, how can we really improve healthcare? Bring back the house call? Open walk-in clinics in convenient places? Help more moms get prenatal care? Or use technology to find insights that lower healthcare costs? Maybe help doctors spend more time with patients, not paperwork? What if we did all of this and more? Because it's all connected to better care, and better care means better health. United Health Group, built for better health. Learn more at UnitedHealthGroup.com. Hey there. NPR's Invisibilia is back with a new season of stories about the invisible forces that shape human behavior. This week, hosts Elise Spiegel and Lulu Miller journey to an Ohio prison to explore whether our personalities are as stable as we think. You can listen and subscribe to Invisibilia at NPR.org slash podcasts or on the NPR One app. Okay, back to the show.
0: Okay, we're back. Let's move backwards in time to Wednesday of this week when Donald Trump gave one of his rare teleprompter speeches. Who can set this up?
3: Donald Trump gave the speech that he had promised to give on the Monday after the Orlando shooting. But because of that shooting, he... Scrap that speech. This is the speech that he had promised would go through all the Clinton scandals. It's actually a speech that Republicans have been begging their standard bearer to give for a very long time. And he went through all of the allegations against Hillary Clinton. Some of them were based in fact. Some of them were based on innuendo and conspiracy theories. But the bottom line is he finally or for the first time, made a comprehensive, coherent argument against Hillary Clinton. And the, to me, the nut of it was he went back to his change versus the status quo message. He talked over and over again about a rigged system, which he says she represents. So it was for the very first time he acted at least somewhat like a general election candidate. And I think he got Republicans off the ledge, Republicans who were just panicking about the state of his campaign.
0: He had given Hillary Clinton a while ago the nickname Crooked Hillary. This speech seems to be Donald Trump defining that. Mm
1: -hmm. Hillary Clinton may be the most corrupt person ever to seek the presidency of the United States. What was striking to me was all the different things he talked about. He talked about her problems with the email server at the State Department. She's a world-class liar. Just look at her pathetic email server statements. He talked what about the Clinton Foundation contribution. Well, nine investors in the deal funneled $145 million dollars to the Clinton Foundation. He talked about misstatements she made about coming under sniper fire when she was a first lady. Or her phony landing in Bosnia where she said she was under attack and the attack turned out to be young girls handing her flowers. And I think what that really does is just illustrate how vulnerable a candidate she could be in the general election. She's been around for a long time. Republicans have disliked her for a long time. Uh, But the thing is... As high as her uh, disapproval ratings are, his are higher. She would be the most unpopular person to ever run for president, except for the person she's running against. And I think that uh, makes me wonder how much of this will stick given the fact that Donald Trump gives this really powerful, blistering speech after a week that he's just been punched in every single news cycle?
3: Well, that to me is the real danger for Trump, because don't forget, not long before, Clinton gave a speech just like this, where she dumped over her complete oppo research file on mm-hmm. Donald Trump. He has just as many outrageous, provocative, controversial things in his background or that have that he's said. So these are two candidates who are really loaded for bear. And we should mention that this
0: speech was fact-checked a lot. There was a lot of scrutiny of the speech, and there was a lot in the speech that was just untrue. Uh, There were things that are fact-check, pants on fire. But,
3: you know, what Scott's talking about, the fact that this came when it did, it came... Uh, a day after he fired his campaign manager, it came, I think, on the same day that we learned he only had $1.3 million cash on hand compared to her, $42 million. It came uh, during a week when we learned he has zero advertising in battleground states and she's spending $26 million. He has 70 paid staff people. She has 700. So it came at a time when... Republicans were really starting to despair. We're not talking about the Republicans who have moral, ethical, and ideological problems with his positions. We're talking about Republicans who wanted to get behind him but were worried that he wasn't willing to do any
2: of the things you have to do to be a successful general election candidate. I mean, do we feel like the the speech itself, though, was it a success in terms of actually conveying some of the – concerns that people have with Hillary Clinton I mean did he successfully get his message through because it felt like I know part of it's the news cycle but he he gave his speech and it very quickly disappeared from the front pages well, yes
3: but her speech in San Diego also disappeared in other words when candidates give a speech like this what they do is they are laying out a menu and they have to come back to these criticisms and attacks and themes over and over and over again and to me this sounded like oh he's got a retooled stump speech it's not going to be so stream of consciousness anymore it's gonna to be this, and he will take bits of this and hammer it home every day just like Hillary Clinton is doing with her soup-to-nuts attack on him.
1: Scott? But, but Mara, doesn't that menu get delivered to voters through advertising? And right now, (laughs) isn't Donald Trump literally not spending a single dollar on TV ads?
3: And that's an excellent question. Hillary Clinton has decided to have a state-of-the-art campaign using every sophisticated tool available to her, social media, advertising on every platform where voters get their information. Um, He hasn't. But something else happened this week that was pretty extraordinary. He sent out his first personal email solicitation for money, and he raised about $5 million in, I think, 48 hours. Now, if he continues to do that, he can catch up to her pretty quick.
0: And Hillary Clinton did also respond. She gave a speech yesterday afternoon. It was mostly a speech about the economy, uh, but she, uh, among other things, defended the Clinton Foundation.
3: The Clinton Foundation helps poor people around the world get access to life-saving AIDS medicine... Donald Trump uses poor people around the world to produce his line of suits and ties. That to me was pretty interesting. She didn't answer the question about whether the foundation should have taken money from foreign governments. She just talked about the good things it does. And that's not really what he was saying. He wasn't saying the foundation was phony and doesn't help people around the world. He was saying there was an inherent conflict of interest about the arrangement with her family having a foundation while she's secretary of state. I
2: mean, in the public health realm, I, I have heard repeatedly a lot of praise for the Clinton Foundation. But I do think that there are some questions of a a candidate who is, you know, running for the highest office in the land, routinely now fundraising from foreign countries. Same thing with the Wall Street speeches. I mean, it's just a question to be raised. Why? If, you're, if you're, you're planning to running, run for president, why would answered? you do that? That's right. It's a question she has not answered. It seems like she's just dodged it more routinely.
0: So why is it that Donald Trump has, as we learned in a campaign finance report this week, $1.3 million cash on hand at the end of May, that he doesn't have the big name endorsements or or as many as as a Republican nominee would in theory have?
1: Well, I think the answer that you hear from the Trump campaign, it was notable uh, when his now former campaign manager, Corey Lewandowski, was talking to CNN earlier this week is they didn't feel that like they needed to change things up because what they've been doing has been working so far. I mean, Donald Trump looks at it like, I rolled my way through the Republican primaries. I beat every single opponent who spent way more money than me. I did it with like five people on my staff. We hardly spent any money in advertising and it worked great. But uh, there's a lot of arguments that convincing the entire country, running campaigns in a dozen different swing states, is just fundamentally different than than dominating the media in a crowded field in the primary process.
3: You know, the other thing Donald Trump has said, he thinks that big data and analytics and that kind of sophisticated high-tech approach to getting out your vote is overrated. He thinks his way, tweeting, big rallies, dominating free media, otherwise known as news coverage, is the way to go. Mm -hmm. And it did work for him in the primary. But this is a real test. We have a real test of two completely different approaches to campaigning. And I would say in the last six weeks, Republicans were coming to the conclusion that Donald Trump's way wasn't working. And now he seems to be willing to use at least a little bit more of the traditional arts of politics.
1: But I still think for the most part, he's not going to to build up that get out the vote operation, that data operation, that... Clinton has literally hundreds of people working on. But for the most part, uh, the RNC says that it can fill in the gaps for Trump and and, and use its existing programs.
3: And that's also a really interesting question. To what extent can a national party make up for what a candidate isn't doing? Usually the candidate leads this effort. And Reince Priebus has spent the last four years developing this, trying to catch up to the Democrats. And this election is going to be a real test of what the RNC has developed.
0: Speaking of getting out the vote... um, One side note here before the Orlando shooting, President Obama was scheduled to campaign with Hillary Clinton. That was postponed.
2: It hasn't been rescheduled. But Asma, next week you are going to be going out. Um, I will be, and Senator Warren um, from the state of Massachusetts, very high-profile progressive senator, will be campaigning with uh, Clinton in Ohio on Monday. So that'll be really interesting to watch in terms of you know how full throttle of an endorsement she gives of Clinton in person, and just sort of how they vibe, and I think also how the crowd feels about these two women um, campaigning. Uh, we'll have a chance to see to what degree and how full scale of an endorsement we see from Warren in person, and whether they look Like a ticket. Yeah, <laughs> <about>.
0: <laughs> but there has definitely been a VP talk when it yeah. comes to Elizabeth Warren. Okay, we've got to take one more quick break and we'll be right back with Listener Mail and Can't Let It Go.
5: Let's take a moment to thank and share a message from our sponsor, LearnVest. Did you know the average indebted American household has over $16,000 in credit card debt? And 31% of Americans have zero retirement savings. The good news is LearnVest is here to help. LearnVest is redefining financial planning by making it affordable and accessible to everyday Americans. When you work with LearnVest, you tell them what you want to accomplish with your money, and they'll create a customized financial plan to help you get there. To see a financial plan and get a $50 credit, go to learnvest.com NPRpolitics.
0: All right. Let's answer some mail, guys. Um, Reminder to email us your questions or feedback at nprpolitics at npr.org. And maybe if you want, record your question on your phone with a voice memo and send it to us here. Again, it's nprpolitics at npr.org. Bonus points if you make the recording fun somehow. I suspect we're going to get songs very soon.
2: <laughs> yes, do send us recordings. Those are always good. Plus, then we can sort of hear your voice, which I always think is really interesting to like hear what our listeners sound like. But before we start answering questions this week,
0: I just want to uh, do a big thank you. Uh, a lot of you wrote to us and Sam, who's on vacation now, Um for what he said about safe spaces in this portion of the show last week, we really do read every one of those notes, even if we can't answer them. And, and they meant a lot to us and to Sam. Uh, so thank you. And also, thank you all so very much for laughing at my Star Wars jokes.
1: Sam, can I say something about that? Yes. As you know, I'm a fellow Star Wars fan. <laughs> it has been addressed on this podcast. And it was... It pained me to listen to last week's episode, watching you fend for yourselves against these Star Wars haters. I dare say, I felt like Obi Wan Kenobi watching Qui Gon Jinn have to fight Darth Maul with the wall in between, not being able to help. Okay, that is you guys how I lost
2: felt. Me at Obi Wan.
1: <laughs> that was the deepest comparison cut I could find to show my appreciation.
2: Thank
0: you, Scott. Anytime. Okay. Here is a question we got from Australia, from a listener asking about gun laws.
1: Hi there, this is Stuart Liddell from Alice Springs in the Northern Territory, Australia. I, We don't have any gun-related entries in our constitution, and a political leader can introduce policy wherever they want. However, you have the Bill of Rights, and let me know exactly what would need to happen to update the Bill of Rights in America in our current society. Thank you. Bye-bye.
2: Thank you. And thank you for your voice memo in that very lovely Australian accent. Australia is interesting because they did a big
0: gun buyback that was at least partially mandatory uh, after there was a mass shooting in Australia. And that idea has been a real hot point um, at times in in this election, because Hillary Clinton was asked about it. Uh, and uh, people who have Second Amendment concerns uh, have raised her answer to a question about that as a possible sign that she is not so hot on the Second Amendment. But to his question...
1: It would be very, 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 very hard, especially when it comes to to gun rights, uh, the, to to amend the Constitution. Basically, two-thirds of the House and two-thirds of the Senate have to agree on something. We we know how hard that is. Then they send that amendment out to the states, and three-quarters of the states have to approve it as well. Uh, it's, It's happened in terms of adding amendments. The only example I can think of of rewriting amendments or scaling back is when prohibition went into effect through a constitutional amendment. And then a few years later, they realized, wait, that was a terrible idea, and repealed that amendment.
0: Let's tackle an email question from Hal, who also wrote to say thanks to Sam last week. He's asking, Now that the primary season is done, I'm finding myself wondering the same thing that I wonder every election cycle. Why do we still use the Electoral College to pick our presidents? In an era when we can fairly and accurately vote for contestants on reality TV in real time via text message, it seems strange that there isn't more of a push to move to a simple popular vote.
3: There is always a push to move to a simpler popular vote, especially after the contested election of 2000. There was a big push. One of the reasons why it's not going to happen is because Congress would have to agree to do it, and senators from small states don't want to give up their clout. But there is a move. It's a little complicated, but there are a number of state legislatures that have passed bills that say that their electors will never go against the popular vote. So, in effect, if enough states pass this kind of bill, it would nullify the effects of the electoral college. But that's the way our system works, and um, we're stuck with that red and blue map for a while.
2: And there are a couple of states, right, Nebraska and Maine, that divvy up do it by their, CD, yeah, yeah. Exactly. congressional district, so yeah. yeah. So, within, if they have, you know, an allocation of four, congr- four electoral votes, they can go fifty-fifty.
1: I kind of like the Electoral College. I think it works well. I think it gives representation to the whole country. Otherwise, we would campaign up and down the coast and that's it.
2: But you're saying the whole country, though, Scott. Scott. You're saying the whole country because you're looking geographically at the country. I would argue that very populous places are often unrepresented, perhaps, right? Like urban centers are not represented as highly, you could argue. Wherever people are the the geography being represented. Well, but wherever big clumps of like
3: minded people are clumped together, they're going to get less attention paid to them in an election because they're all voting one way and they're taken for granted. That's true. Also, oh my God, 13 states is
0: enough, man. 13
1: states.
0: Swing states. (laughs) Oh,
1: Uh, I thought you were like, make America a 13 state colony. Well,
3: there is something fundamentally unfair. Trump
1: wants to go back to the 50s, Tam wants to go back to the 1790s. (laughs)
0: All right, we have one more question from Maddie in Berkeley. She writes I'm really into politics, but my partner is disinterested, partly from lack of information about candidates, bills, etc., partly from feeling like his vote doesn't matter. Can you please explain to him and other disaffected youth, in quotes, why voting is
2: important, besides it being exercising your right to democracy. Well, Maddie, uh, this is Asma, and I will say I think it's really hard to explain why your vote matters in a presidential context if you all live in Berkeley, California. Uh, Because California, I don't mean this lightly. Um, I mean, I live in the state of Massachusetts. It is a habitually democratic state in presidential elections. So it's really hard because if I don't vote, arguably... It really doesn't matter. Both of our states will likely vote for the Democratic candidate. That being said, in local races, I think it matters enormously to vote for your city councilor or your governor because those things very intimately affect you. Uh, This goes back to the Electoral College, though. If we didn't have an Electoral College, I would argue every person ought to vote for president.
0: And I have a suggestion for Maddie which is California has all of these uh, ballot propositions and initiatives that are really confusing but also totally fascinating. And my brother, who lives in California, every election year, he holds a party where he gets fellow nerds and also people who are not informed at all together with their sample ballot, and they and they debate each ballot proposition, they make it fun, and then they know how to vote. Because otherwise, it's just confusing.
1: and and I want to go to this party. <laughs> you know, it's it's really
3: interesting that we had a caller, uh, a listener from Australia, where there is mandatory voting. That's one way uh, to force Maddie's partner to get interested because he has to vote. But if part one of his problems. Feeling like his vote doesn't matter, I think Ozma really answered that. But if his other problem, she says, is from lack of information about candidates and bills, she needs—he needs to listen to national public radio and learn about all this stuff that that is going to affect his life, depending on who's elected.
0: Yeah, in Australia, it's like a fine,
2: right? If yeah, you don't it's vote, it's
3: mandatory, and there's a fine. There's a penalty. You don't get hauled off to jail.
2: <laughs> <That's> <laughs> now, like Obamacare. That'd be hilarious. <laughs> the jail for non-voters. Oh.
0: All right, that's the mail, which means it's time for Can't Let It Go, where we all share one thing we just can't stop thinking about this week, politics or otherwise. Though I
3: think ours are all politics.
1: I think this is an all-political week.
3: Mara? My Can't Let It Go, my clig, this week is Marco Rubio, who's running for re-election after all. After, after saying 10, he wasn't going to <laughs> and after losing his home state in the primary to Donald Trump. But I guess he's decided that the Senate is not such a bad place after all to run for president.
2: <laughs> because you think he is going to Because he run is certainly
3: going to run again. Do you I think thought... he'll win his Senate seat? Pardon?
2: Do you think he's hands down going to win no, that No, I think seat?
3: he's not hands down, but I do think he's the favorite.
1: Hmm. Asma, you should reread that tweet that we dramatically did a month or so ago about how he only said like 10,000 times –
2: he that he will be a private yeah. citizen come January, which but he still could he, if he loses. He said, "Well, he did say he changed his mind." And yes, then in politics, sometimes minds. politicians don't like to admit that they changed his mind. Uh, but he he did, and he put that out there. There you go, Asma. Awesome. So my can't let it go uh, is in the political realm, but it is from across the ocean. A very interesting vote that is going on currently as we tape our podcast. So I don't even know the results, and that is Brexit standing for British Exit. Um, So I am literally actually obsessed with this and have been reading article after article about this. I should also preface that I spent two years in graduate school in the UK. I have a lot of British friends uh, there and a lot of friends who actually came from continental Europe who were studying uh, in the UK because it was very easy if you were an EU citizen to come and study in the UK.
0: So Brexit, the British Exit, Britain...
2: would exit the European Union. Correct. That is what they are voting on. And their referendum, if I can show you what a sample ballot that Ezra Klein from Vox put up this morning on Twitter, it's a very easily understandable ballot. You were saying how complex, you know, the California ballot initiatives are. It says vote only once by putting a cross or an X in the box next to your choice. Should the United Kingdom remain a member of the European Union or leave the European Union? You have two options. Very easy to understand. But what is fascinating about this is that it holds so many interesting political implications. And I would argue not just for Britain, but also for the global economy. If uh, if Britain were to exit from... To Brexit. Or, yeah, if Britain were to Brexit, <laughs> um, <laughs> then essentially... You know, the power of of the EU would change. I mean, it just changes the international economy in many ways. The U.S. does a lot of trade uh, with the U.K., but with the U.K. as a part of the EU. A lot of this comes down to, you know, questions around jobs and identity. But some of it also comes down to some of the very issues we've been hearing about in our campaign season here, which is immigration. There has been a lot of concern about immigrants coming from other EU countries into Britain. And we'll see what happens. There are no exit polls. So it's very exciting. <laughs> there are no, exits know. Well, no exits on the Brexit? No exits on the Brexit. Scott.
1: That leads me to my can't let it go, which Osma stole, which is not the first time that there has been a conflict in can't let it go. Uh, I will broaden it out a little bit and just say that I'm always like really obsessed with British elections because they're really quirky. And I cannot wait to go home and watch the BBC elections results show tonight, which I will be doing. I often do this with some sort of like British or Scottish themed liquor as well. I I watch the Scottish referendum with Scotch. But there's just, they have all these quirky things. First of all, like when they're doing parliamentary elections, all the candidates show up to the same location for uh, the results to be read. Like it's a boxing match. So you have to stand on stage (laughs) and all the candidates are wearing like big, ridiculous looking ribbons. And then they stand on the same stage and all have to give their acceptance or losing speeches at the same time. Uh, the other thing is that it is actually against the law for British reporters to talk about the election on Election Day. There is an imposed blackout that goes into effect and doesn't get lifted until the polls close. So, like, you can't even talk about it on Election Day if you're yeah, a reporter. You do not know that. Yeah. Aren't
3: there talk laws also Brexit? against advertising before a certain day?
1: Yeah, they, it's it's restricted. I forget exactly how much, but there, there's there's very tight restrictions on when you can advertise, how long the elections last. It's just totally different. And the other thing that has just kind of happened organically, but uh, NPR's producer in uh, London pointed this out, and I've loved it all day. There's a hashtag dogs at polling stations uh, thing going right now where where people are taking a picture of their dog in front of the polling stations, and it's very nice.
0: Well, Scott, enjoy your warm beer tonight. I think I was going
1: to go with gin and tonic instead.
2: Oh, that's that's a better idea. (laughs) By this time next week, guys, we will know whether Britain is going to be a part of the EU or not. And we will have all time to chew over
3: what it means for this election. And I think it's going to give a boost at least ephemerally, kind of in the ether to Donald Trump, who's running on very similar platform to the the Leave campaign. He happens happens to also be going to Scotland today not to meet with foreign leaders as presidential candidates often do, but to open a new golf course. Hmm. What is your Can't Let Go, Tam?
0: Mark Kirk is a, uh, an Illinois senator, a Republican, though a moderate Republican, uh, considered to be one of the uh, most endangered and in trouble uh, senators up for reelection this year. And he is out with a new campaign ad. I want to play a little bit of it. Mark
3: was the first Republican to support a vote on President Obama's Supreme Court nominee. He's a leader on protecting a woman's right to choose. And Mark Kirk bucked his party to say Donald Trump is not fit to be commander in chief. Mark Kirk, courageous and
1: independent. I'm Mark Kirk, and I approve this message. What party is he?
0: He is a Republican, (laughs) exactly. But he is a Republican from Illinois, and he is the first Senate candidate to come out with an ad running against his party's
2: nominee. The question is whether he will be the last. It's interesting that he's a senator from Illinois. Uh, You might all remember our perfect state analysis in which Illinois was uh, demographically or is demographically the most perfect state. So it's a really diverse state. It votes habitually for the Democratic candidate in presidential elections. But it's had a pretty interesting mix on on local races. Um, But I think in a presidential election year for a Republican senator to win... uh, like Mark Kirk, he will need to moderate and move to the middle. And he's always been relatively moderate, but this
0: is a campaign ad where he is attacking his party's nominee.
2: And also, though, I mean, if you listen to some of that rhetoric, he's a a candidate who's for a woman's right to choose. Uh, He's a candidate who was on board to have a vote for President Obama's Supreme Court nominee. I mean, none of those things really sounded like traditional Republican ideas.
0: All right. Well, that is a wrap for this week. And as always, you can find more of our political coverage at nprpolitics.org and on your local public radio station. Please do us a favor and rate this show on iTunes if you like it. And find us on Twitter if you want to talk about Star Wars or anything else. Um, Write us an email or a recording of yourself asking a question to nprpolitics at npr.org. I'm
2: Tamara Keith. I cover the White House and the campaign. I'm Asma Khalid. I cover demographics in the campaign.
1: I'm Scott Detrow, campaign reporter.
3: And I'm Mara Lyason, national political correspondent.
2: And thank you
0: for listening to the NPR Politics Podcast.